As the COVID-19 pandemic enters week seven, Americans are starting to consider what comes next. What will life look like for us when America reopens for business? How will government do things differently? The COVID-19 outbreak is hitting marginalized communities the hardest, and is there a political backlash coming due to how this crisis has unfolded? Will it hold our system accountable for the inequalities and in how Americans have experienced this pandemic? And is our political system going to be held accountable for these failures of governance? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, associate professor at Marquette University. Drutman, a senior fellow at New America, and I'm so excited to introduce our special guest for this episode, Jamila Mishner, who is an assistant professor at Cornell University and has also written a really wonderful book called Fragmented Democracy, really looks at the way Americans experience Medicaid and how that affects perceptions of government and really takes a uh, a smart look at the politics of race and class and inequality. And given the, the inequalities of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way it's hit marginalized communities the hardest, uh, I couldn't think of a better guest to think about what that all means than Jamila. So well, welcome to the show, Jamila. Thanks for having me. I couldn't think of a better podcast to be able to have this conversation on. Oh, wow. Well, that is uh, incredibly kind of you. So, uh there's kind of a big meta question that, that we want to think about, which is this question that James mentioned in the introduction, which is, will our political system be held accountable for the failures of government governance to support all Americans at this time? So we're just going to each give our quick take on that. So, Jamil, let's start with you. Sure. I I fear that I'm going to risk being a little pessimistic here, which my students always accuse me of, but I think that the answer to this is no, except um, with the caveat that it's possible under some conditions, but I don't see those conditions holding, to be frank. I think that uh, right now, everything is such a mess. Accountability, political accountability, at least, depends on a wide range of things, but some of those things are uh, functional elections <laughs> that uh, actually incorporate a wide enough swath of the electorate that people who may be harmed by the choices of political elites and political officials will actually be able to have a voice and that that voice will sort of be um, carried through the electoral system. And I just think even before we were in the middle of a of a pandemic before COVID-19, that wasn't really happening effectively for a wide range of reasons. And now there's even more noise, there's even more confusion. Uh, and I don't see, and, and what's going to happen around elections is uncertain. So it's very difficult to imagine um, accountability happening. But a big thing, and this connects to, I'm sure the conversation we'll have that I think gets in the way is that the fact that our governance system has not effectively provided Americans, especially those who are most marginalized, with relief, with security, and with stability, just in terms of their everyday material lives, that's going to make accountability really hard because people will be so preoccupied with trying to survive 
that it's unclear whether they're going to be able to have the bandwidth to assert their political voice. James? Yes, um, I, I think that's right. And, and I'm really excited about, about having um, this conversation today with you all. And typically what I do in these situations is zoom out to about as high as possible, 98,000 feet or something, whatever the, the, the appropriate elevation is. And I, and I like to start by thinking through what do we mean by hold accountable, right? And how do we decide and where do we decide that? And what do we mean by failures of governance? And, and I think even what does that language Im imply? And oftentimes in the past, I've spoken about how we think about politics in a very meta way and whether or not we see government in terms of kind of progress or whether or not we think about and, and conceptualize government in, in, a, in architectonic terms, in terms of forms of government, in terms of uh, a place where an activity of politics occurs. And so I, those are the ways in which I'm wrestling with this question because I'm not sure I know how to how I initially want to answer it. But I but I do want to pick up here on this last point that was just made, and I think it's a good one. And and as uh, as a conservative, I think conservatives oftentimes have a have a very negative reaction to things like identity politics. Or and and lately, I've been wrestling with this, and I think that. We all experience the world in, in unique ways, in distinct ways, and we all have a different perception of reality. And that doesn't mean that there is no reality, but it just means that, that the, our experiences, our life, our environment, all of that shapes how we see and understand the world around us. And I think that we have to have conversations like this one for people with different backgrounds and different perspectives on the world to, to come together and get a better understanding of reality in the round. And that's why I thought I read this book. I thought it was such a fabulous book precisely for that reason, because I do think given the, the unique nature of, of the, um, the kind of differences in, in economics and, 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 and race in this country, that if life is just completely unimaginable from both perspectives, depending upon where you are and how you live your life and what like economic income bracket you're in and all of these other factors. And it really is remarkable because when I first started uh, this book and I opened it up and I'm like, well, Medicaid and, you know, but it's true. I think that when your life is when consumed with um, an inability to get health care, when your life is consumed by, um, you know, economic concerns and anything else, it, it becomes very difficult to participate in politics. And that's something that I think is elevating my understanding right now about our political system. So with that, I, I'm, I'm very anxious to see what, what uh, you and uh, Julia think about this as well. Julia? Yeah, so I wanna um, have a chance to have Jamila describe her, her book a little bit. And my question there is about um, what really grabbed me about this book, which I taught back in December to my uh, master's students class in American politics was, was the way in which there's this rigorous social science framework, but that, that the work really gives us a sense of what people's lives are like and what their, what their experiences are like and how they see their relationship with the government, with the state, with the, the program that they depend on to get their health care. Um, so I'd like to, to get Jamila talking a little bit about her work and, and telling us a little bit about uh, what it's like to depend on Medicaid in, in a normal, non-pandemic situation. Oh, I, and I also want to give my take um, before 
Jamila jumps in there on on what will happen next. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about uh, moments of crisis and the way in which disruptions potentially expand our political imagination and, you know, help us to understand in sharper relief some of the things about our society that we sort of ignored in happier times. And I, you know, I think expanding our imagination to understand the injustices and inequalities and, you know, frankly, the externalities of those inequalities, that having a healthcare system where a lot of people can't get care, uh, I think, you know, puts us all at risk. And, you know, I think it expands our sense of, of empathy. And I am hopeful that that will spill over into a broader imagination of our society. But maybe I'm being too optimistic here. Yeah. So I, I want to jump in on, on that, too, because I, I forgot. I'm just like so excited to start to talk about uh, this this book that I forgot to give my prior about accountability. I've been thinking a lot about this. And um, I guess my prior is that I tend to think about accountability in terms of national elections. And, you know, a lot of my work turns on um, on presidential elections. And so I have this really sort of two level take about how that works at the national level, where I think we do see those in power punished when things don't go well. I see I think, you know, I think we have elections that at the national level kind of reject the status quo, but then that's as far as it goes. It, you know, it, it's very hard for that to turn into something constructive where change can be imagined in a governance sense and not just in a sense of electoral punishment. And that's, and I think as I'm thinking about why that occurs at the national level, I think some of that has to do with the fact that the political conversation tends to be national and the implementation of policy, and this is, this is particularly evident in, in Jamila's work, but it's it's true in a lot of different aspects. The implementation and the reality happens, you know, at the state level, it happens locally, it happens block by block. And I think that that, that disconnect between national and subnational politics is driving some of what makes meaningful accountability so challenging. But I, I uh, really would like to hear from our, our guest, if possible, here. Yeah, I actually think that was a great note uh, to, to leave off on. And you, what you said made me think about the difference between sort of, uh, you know, maybe turnover as far as who, which party is in power or, um, you know, who, who the president is, what the composition of, of Congress looks like. And the difference between that as electoral punishment in a sense, right? If you're perceived to have failed, you're punished electorally, your party loses more than it wins in this round of the game. Uh, the difference between that and actual accountability that leads to constructive changes in governance. And I, so I think that that's um, really key and that probably drives my more pessimistic take, which is that the, the kind of latter, deeper changes in governance are what I'm doubtful about. Uh, it's possible that there could be accountability in terms of who's in power, but whether that leads to, to more transformative change is the piece that I think is hard. And part of the reason why is because of this work that I do that really takes me on the ground into people's lives. And Medicaid is uh, both super important in its own right, just because of how many millions of people in this country rely on it. I mean, prior to COVID-19, we're talking about 
you know, 70 million Americans. And now that number has been going up. And um, so we're talking about even more than that. And so it's important just as a program that's touching many people's lives. And often it's touching people's lives at times uh, when they're really vulnerable economically and when they uh, are in need. Um, but then Medicaid is also a lens, like it just helps, it's a way to sort of see into people's lives and understand the way that government is affecting their lives. And, and when I look at it from that perspective in the book, and frankly, I've continued since the book on some other projects uh, that have allowed me to continue looking at this. And in some ways I feel like I'll never, I'll never stop with Medicaid. I mean, I'm literally in like Facebook groups with Medicaid beneficiaries who are every day when I go on Facebook are talking about uh, the challenges and sometimes the victories of what it what it means to rely on Medicaid. And what it's like is it, in general, it's hard. Um, it's not as hard for everyone everywhere. And this is a lot of what the book focuses on that the ways that it's hard and the extent to which it's difficult just to hold on to your health insurance coverage if you're getting it through Medicaid really varies across states and within states. Um, but for most people, it's, it's challenging, right? Uh, there are a lot of hurdles to jump through and there's a kind of continual need to sort of renew, to fill out new forms and to interact with a bureaucracy that is not structured to help you and to make your life easier. I've been doing a project now with Carolyn Barnes, who's a scholar at Duke, and she studies WIC. So it's a supplemental nutritional assistance program for women, infants, and children. And a few years ago, we were having a conversation and she was telling me about WIC and I was telling her about Medicaid. And we were like, whoa, these are both programs for people living in poverty, but they're really different. And we decided to do some work on this and we've been working on a paper on it now. And one of the things that's really different is that WIC actually has a mandate to kind of do outreach, to draw people in, to stay engaged with them. The idea is to make people's lives easier and better, to improve something really concrete in their life, their nutrition and their health outcomes. With Medicaid, it's not really focused in that way. It's about getting people this health insurance if they're eligible for it. So it's much more an emphasis on just processing people and people feel processed. And that's, that's not an experience that is positive for the most part, although people are tremendously grateful for being able to have access to health insurance when they didn't before. So often there's a kind of mixed response that I get when I talk to people who are, who are on Medicaid. Um, and on the one hand, they're grateful because they realize that they might be dead without this program. And on the other hand, they can easily recount to me time after time after time when they had to essentially wage a, a mini war in order to hold on to the benefits, in order to get what they needed covered. And um, that continual frustration wears on people and it teaches them a lot about who they are in the eyes of the government. I think in... Well, actually, I have one sort of broad question, uh, which is what, what percentage of Americans receive Medicaid, just to, to help us understand how, how important and broad this program is? So pre-pandemic, pre, you know, we're talking about 20% of Americans, one in five. And interesting, to, one, another way to think about these numbers is, so 
you know, that's a lot of people. But if we think about, um, you know, how many people either have received Medicaid at some point in their, in their life course, but even though they may not be on the program now, or have a close connection, like a close family member or a very close friend who, who presently received Medicaid, if we think about it through that lens, we're talking about roughly 70% of Americans are sort of one degree of separation from relying on this program, either themselves at some course in their, some point in their life course, or through a very close loved one. So you've studied Medicaid mostly in normal times, and these are, I would say, abnormal times. So I want to see if you can give us a little bit more of a lens on the, the kind of unique devastation uh, that lower income communities of color are facing in this moment and how that interacts with uh, their relationship and their interactions with government. And this you know, might be through other programs as well as Medicaid. But you know, just, just I think to, to help us expand our imagination um, of, of what it's like to, to, to be interacting with the government, you know, especially in these times. I think the word that comes to mind really is, are maybe two words, are confusing and disorienting. Uh, I've been trying to, although it's challenging, everyone has a lot going on, but one of the things that's important to me is like staying connected to people who are navigating these systems. And so some of those folks are people who have been a part of my research projects, who I, who I stay in touch with in various ways. And honestly, some of that is just like family members and friends. I grew up in Queens in New York City in neighborhoods where a lot of people rely on Medicaid and, and other programs like that. And uh, just yesterday, I was talking to my brother about his attempts to uh, apply for unemployment. And he has tried multiple times. And each time he comes back to me and says, well, it says this, I don't think I'm eligible. And I say, nope, you are eligible. Like, let's go try again, put this in. And it's like a back and forth, right? And prior to all of this happening, he was an Uber driver in New York City. And so his choice is eventually I have to go back to driving. And um, that scares me because it's New York City, first of all. It's sort of at the epicenter of the, of the crisis. But if the choice is between navigating this government program in order to get relief and going back into a situation that is literally putting your life at stake, that, that's actually a real choice for him. It's, it's not, oh, of course I'll figure out the government program because there's a sense that I really am not going to be able to get through. Uh, there's no one on the other end that cares about me, that cares about whether I get back in that Uber, about whether I live or die. And um, the number of conversations I've had, not just with my brother, but other folks who are trying, um, whether it's Medicaid or uh, SNAP, that's food assistance, who are trying to get through and just confused because things are changing. The eligibility requirements are changing. And actually, eligibility requirements and application processes are in many ways right now changing for the better. The, the eligibility standards are being lowered. In some cases, application processes are being streamlined to try to speed things up. But change also without kind of a context where people understand it and where you're sort of walking people through 
the steps of what that change means for them, it just becomes confusing and disorienting and, and alienates folks. And a big part of this is just how strapped our local bureaucracies are. There aren't enough people to actually kind of talk to someone who's applying for unemployment or who needs assistance with food um, or who needs to sign up for medical insurance and explain to them what the program is and what the changes are. And there's no one to actually engage you on a human level and help you figure things out, even if it requires five minutes of a conversation. That was the case before this, and it's so much more the case now. So people are confronting local bureaucracies that are completely and entirely unequipped to treat them uh, like people who need to be guided through really confusing bureaucratic mazes of our own making. I, I, I think that's, that's a great... I think that's a great observation. And it really, you know, I, I really enjoyed your book and I would encourage our listeners to, to read it. Every page, I, something new was leaping off the page at me. Something new was occurring in my brain and my thinking. I was jumping all over the place. Um, it, you know, half the time I'm, I'm, I'm arguing with the book, half the time I'm arguing with myself based on something new that I learned in the book. But I, I really want to seize on this last this this last point that you've that you've mentioned here, and you, you know your concept of political participation I think is an important one, and I think that your book really provides a commentary that is, helps to illuminate I think a lot of the dysfunction in our government more broadly. But I think the capacious is the term that you use in the book, and when you talk about the bureaucracy and interacting with the bureaucracy i think that's correct and it's especially tough for for racial minorities for low income americans but i but i also think that it's tough for all americans and i'm not trying to equate them by any means but i think that this offers a window into a lot of the dysfunction we see today hannah arendt uh, refers to this kind of form of government as the rule of nobody and it, it i think it dovetails quite nicely with our question because in a bureaucracy there's no one to hold accountable and how, you know, I'm wondering, like, how our per concept of political participation and how your concept of political participation really enhances our understanding of where we are headed as a nation. And when you mentioned the fact that, you know, people, it's almost dehum like it, it makes you like you're not even a human at this point. Right. You're just a technical problem that you're reckoned with. And if you think about the the bureaucracy, it's where, in theory at least, there it's it's about the application of expertise, of rationalistic bureaucratic expertise to solve technical problems. And if you think about, say, the Congress or the the state legislatures, more of a kind of a participatory type um, legislative representative assembly, and there there's certainly I think challenges and limits to to people's ability to participate in those as well, but. In those places, it's about the application of, per, of, of persuasion. You're, you're persuading one another, at least in theory. You're bargaining and you're negotiating. And to do that, you have to acknowledge each other as individuals, as people, and you have to speak to where that person is that you're trying to persuade. And again, this is in a very general way. But you know, how does your concept of political participation really illuminate this distinction between a bureaucratic politics and a more of a participatory politics. Oh, I think that's great. I, you know, I, capacious is right. I always wonder if that word is too, uh, like, you know, fuzzy for people to really um, connect to. But 
I love it. Don't I, stop using it. It's a, <laughs> it's a great, we need more capacious uh, thinking in our politics these days, I think. Um, and I, I think, you know, I try to think about very intentionally to think about political participation capaciously or broadly. And I have to admit that that's not my own invention. One of the things that I did in these interviews, what I, I, I would ask people, you know, how they participated in politics. And a lot of times people would kind of give me blank stares and not really know what to say. And then as the conversation unfolded, all sorts of things that they were doing that brought them into contact with the government or that brought them into contact with their communities that set them up as people who could act to change the world around them in some ways. Sometimes that change was just in the service of their own needs or the needs of their family. And sometimes it was beyond that. But I realized from talking to people that even people who weren't voting and who would sort of roll their eyes at the, even the idea of voting, right? Why would they do that? None of those people care about me. Uh, were still engaging in the world around them in ways that were significant. And I wanted to think about political participation as incorporating that. And I didn't want those folks to just get labeled apathetic, right? Oh, poor people don't participate as much. We we label them as apathetic and we say that they can't do it because of all of the barriers facing them. There's a truth to that, uh, but it's also more complicated than that. And I wanted to develop a kind of conceptualization of participation that just incorporated more things, things like interacting with bureaucracies that may not view you um, in their practices as a political agent or, you know, as someone who they're engaging with, with respect to democratic practices, but that still might be, in fact, what's happening. And even working in your local community, um, working in your social networks and your social circles to inform people about how to deal with these bureaucracies, all of those things are ways of, I would argue, enacting a more robust democratic citizenship that often fall off of the radar. So, you know, my model for political participation is you know, a little, sometimes I think a little unwieldy, <laughs> um, but it's unwieldy with an eye towards having an inclusive understanding of what participation means. And I do think it highlights uh, the, the kinds of tensions that you talk about between a kind of a, an inclusive participatory approach to governance where people are actually uh, in the kind of nuts and bolts of interacting with local and state governments getting to influence and have some say over the set of benefits and burdens that that they're um you know being exposed to or that they have an opportunity to have access to uh so th there's that kind of robust or our approach and then there's the reality which is that most people um, are just another number. And the number of people who said that to me, I'm just another number, I'm just another number. But one of the things that I think is really, and this is something that I guess maybe I don't feel like I emphasize enough in the book now that I look on the other end of it. One of the things I think is really important is to point out that it's not as though government need be that way or bureaucracy need be that way. There are, there are some ways in which people can, we can fall into, even I, I think, 
um, the trap of thinking, well, that's just how bureaucracies are. Like all bureaucracies function that way. The DMV drives me crazy, you know? And so it's, it's a weakness of kind of bureaucratic structures. And one of the things that I'm finding in this project where we're comparing WIC and Medicaid is that that's not true. That there's a way to design bureaucratic structures so that they're actually engaging people, qua people, and inviting them to be a part of the process of structuring the conditions that shape their lives. It's not easy. It's, uh, it's easier to just process people. Um, but it's possible. And that's one thing that I, I don't know that it comes across in the book, but I want to make sure it comes across here. Well, and Julia, just to follow up very briefly, see, you are an optimist because you know, I have this sense from a very theoretical level that your bureaucracies, when you deal with large numbers of people, it, you have to have some sort of standardization. And that standardization inevitably looks at individuals as interchangeable. And so I, I'm very intrigued by this. I need to wrestle with this and, and chew on this and think on this, but I, I like the optimism. I'm heartened by it. So, so thank you for that. But uh, Julia, sorry to, sorry to interrupt and steal your, your, your time there. That's all right. I, I wanted to get deeper into this idea about how, in, in some ways, this is a little bit in, in the book, this is, goes in a different direction than the folks who were kind of depressed about their um, their ability to participate or meaningfully affect politics. And that is that you, you describe this notion of particularized resistance and a set of the, the folks that you talked to who were inclined and able to push back against some of the decisions that affected their lives, asking for, for hearings, um, appealing decisions, pushing back against kind of uh, bureaucratic decisions. So I'm I'm curious about, you know, what what is this concept of particularized resistance and how might it apply or help us shed light on some things that are going on in, in other contexts? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm glad that this comes out. I worry that this that this chapter in the book would just kind of fall into the background for folks and, and it would be more about, you know, variation across states and what that means, which is really important. But uh this really struck me as I was talking to people, the, the contrast between uh, maybe the stereotypical, or not stereotypical, but the typical, not necessarily stereotypical, but typical based on research that we have that tells us, you know, low-income people, folks who are at the margins economically, racially, there are all sorts of barriers to their participation, and so they're not going to vote as much, and that's what we would expect, and um, it's just this very, um, this attenuated view of their agency. But then when I talked to people, when I interviewed people, I saw so much more than that. And I, I would just ask people a simple question, like, have you, ever, have you ever had any problems with Medicaid? And everyone said yes, for the most part, and would then explain to me not just the nature of those problems, but the various ways that they try to push back against those problems. So people weren't just saying, oh, my benefits got cut off, too bad. Some people were, but other people were saying, no, I have to actually, this system has to be made to work for me and, and I'm going to request a fair hearing or I'm going to keep calling and asking to talk to that person's boss and that person's boss and that person's boss until I get someone who will listen to me and be responsive. And sometimes the decision to, to push back in that way could literally be life-saving 
or the decision not to, right? So in the book, I talk about a woman whose benefits, uh, whose husband's benefits got cut off and they decided uh, not to push back. And one of the things that happened is he had an epileptic seizure and, and bit off almost half of his tongue. And so that's not to say it's their fault, right? You should have pushed back, but that's to say how high the stakes are. And I, when I looked out into the kind of landscape of political science research, I just didn't see that kind of, I think, resistance against um, bureaucracies accounted for. And I call it particularistic resistance because, you know, there's a way in which when we think about resistance, even now, we think we can think about it in a large scale way, like, you know, the resistance or the, the folks who oppose Trump or what have you. Um, and we don't think about how resistance can be particularized and it can just be about getting your individual needs met, frankly. And there's a way in which we think that if, if pushing back against the government is just about getting your individual needs met or the needs of your family met, then it's not really political and it doesn't really count. And, and in the book, I'm trying to say that that's not true. It's deeply political. It's about our relationships and the people around us, their relationships with the state. It's about our ability to survive and thrive. And it's about how we engage the state. And it requires a sense of who you are and what you are entitled to. Um, and so it's deeply political and worth paying attention to. I think this is going to be it's going to be really interesting to see what forms of particularized resistance emerge right now because uh, people like my brother who keep trying to uh, apply for unemployment and who, you know, by all accounts, everything that I can read about how the unemployment rules have been adjusted suggests that he's eligible, but the computer he's typing his information into tells him he's not. And so either you kind of accept that and you say, oh, I guess I'll go back to work and put myself in a dangerous situation. Or you push back and you say, no, I am supposed to be eligible. I'm going to call every day, all day until I get someone and I'm going to push. And that's a completely different orientation to government. And it affects how you think about yourself, how you understand your agency and your ability to, to get a response from the state. So I think it's really important if kind of understated. And I think it's only going to be more important as we move forward uh, in this moment. Yeah, let's, uh, I, I want to expand the conversation in, in picking up on, on that really important point, because I, I think one of the things that's so eye-opening about your your work is just thinking about people's interactions with government and people's frustrations with government as important political variables. And, you know, so I, I want to think about this in both the the immediate 2020 short term and, and the broader term, uh, you know, of, of the next decade or so. But let's let's start with uh, the 2020 election. And just want to kind of get your thoughts on on how that resistance translates into either political apathy or political mobilization in 2020, especially in some key cities and some key states. And I'm thinking here like Detroit or Philadelphia or Milwaukee. Yeah, I, so I, my answer to that is that it really depends on um, what kind of intermediary organizations can channel some of the 
uh, the grievances and the questions that are emerging for people now. One thing that uh, really strikes me is that, so I study poverty and social policy and racial inequality. And even though I actually come from places where those things are front and center for people, I very rarely talk to my family about any of those things. And when I do, they tend not to be terribly interested. And that has just completely changed in the last few weeks to the point where they want to know, they're asking. I did this like webcasting a few weeks ago and my dad like came on and listened. And it's just a small example, but my sense more broadly is that people are now thinking about uh, things that they never thought about before. So how does unemployment operate? How do these different social benefits operate? Why is it that I don't, I really don't have any flexibility. Like I have to go to work even though I feel unsafe. My, my nephew works in uh, the Amazon plant in um, our warehouse in Queens where there was a breakout. And he lives with my parents and my mom is severely immunocompromised. And it was a huge challenge. Do you go back to work or not? And this idea that we can't really not go back to work, otherwise we won't survive. That has really raised questions in my family. Why do we live in a system where we either have to work or die? And so whether those questions though lead to a change in how they'll, for, for example, approach the next election is gonna largely depend on whether and how they're mobilized or organized to think about the connections between the issues that they're seeing emerge right now and the outcomes of those elections, right? So the last several elections, actually, I've been unable to get uh, my brother to vote despite Herculean efforts. And he just says, you know what? This is how the neighborhood was when we were growing up. This is how it was before Obama. This is how it was after Obama. This is how it was with de Blasio. This is how it was with, you know, it doesn't really matter who's in power is his perspective. We're always going to be at the bottom. And the question is whether this moment is going to amplify that sense that we will always be at the bottom and it doesn't matter who's in power or whether this moment is going to provide an opportunity to see things in a different way. So I know that some of the differences between what's happening in different cities have become apparent to people. And that might, it might spur a kind of understanding that, oh, actually, it does matter who's in power. It matters whether I'm in Milwaukee versus New Orleans versus Detroit, because our mayors are different and they made different decisions and now we can see different outcomes. Um, but somebody has to put that framing on the radar for people and help them to understand the linkages between what they're experiences and experiencing and what political choices they make without that kind of intermediary mobilizing and organizing and framing, people will not just spontaneously respond to grievances at the polls. Some will, but I don't think it will happen on a kind of massive scale, not enough of a scale to, to lead to real change. I'm, I'm really interested by this, this interplay between agency and federalism that, that you draw out, Jamila, very well in the, in the book. And I want to take just for for argument's sake a slightly, I want to approach it from a different perspective and see what you um, and what you think about it, and, and to share with our listeners as well, um, because I think that both 
I think agency is so critical. And I think the structures in which that agency unfolds is, is very critical. And I think that a big part of the problem today is that we have a different concept, not only of our own agency, and, and I think we tend to at all levels and, and all incomes and all races have this sense of, um, of victimhood in our politics today, precisely because of a migration towards a more bureaucratic type politics. And that obviously is going to differ for individuals based on a whole host of different considerations, but I think there is a commonality there. And I do think that we we no longer have this sense of structure of, of kind of an architectonic uh, notion of, of government. And when I think about federalism, and I, I, I agree that it definitely produces a disproportionate impacts and, and, and uneven impacts across the nation and different communities. But I have this sense, and I'm reminded, you know, thinking back to Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here?, which was wrestling with the, the turn in the nation and the turn in the civil rights movement as well. After, the, after Selma, after the signing, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act. Incidentally, this is the same period in time in which Medicaid comes about. Uh, but, you know, he signs the Voting Rights Act. And then a couple of what days later, maybe weeks later, Watts goes up in flames. And then all of a sudden the inner cities um, are reacting in a very real way to poverty, to a lot of stuff, to a lot of injustice. Well, white America starts behaving very differently than it did before uh, during the civil rights movement, the early stages of it. And and this is is is, is a very complicated and thing here. And and what King says, and I've and I've just pulled it out, I'm going back and look at it. He he says that the answers in trying to explain this are both more complex and less pessimistic than what people fully appreciate. And that's how I feel about federalism. Not that it's not that it's necessarily error-free or cost-free, but that it's it's very complex and it's also gives me hope for a better tomorrow. And one of the reasons why is because I see it as an arena. And it seems to me that people have who have agency, who want to exercise that agency, it's a lot easier to participate in, in arenas at the state and local level. And help me understand why what I'm missing here or why or what's incomplete about this, because I'm sure there's something is that if, say, if Medicaid isn't working well in, in say, Alabama, then isn't it easier to change policy in Alabama than it is to say, change it at the national level or you know how what am i missing here help me and, and the listeners understand that if you if you can and tell me i'm crazy too I mean, feel free to do that i don't think you're crazy at all i think you're getting to the heart of the really tough questions about federalism here and one of the things that i at some point after the first draft of the book i i went back and i took a break from it and then i went back and i read the manuscript and I thought this sounds too much like it's sort of a screed against federalism or like it's anti-federalism. And I, and I made a lot of edits to try to kind of shift that. And I, and sorry to interrupt. I do want to say for our listeners that that does come through. I, I think that that is very obvious that you're not attacking federalism and I'm not trying to suggest that you are here. Oh no, I was at first, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but in the process of like doing the research that I did for the book and the reading and sort of diving more deeply, I became critical of my own perspective towards that and had to sort of go back and, and moderate and, and add some nuance. And I mean, so it's not so much that I think that you're getting that wrong. I think that 
it's completely true, not only possible, but we've seen it and we continue to see it, uh, that, it that federalism provides opportunities for people to engage in ways that they, they likely wouldn't and couldn't if we had a, a, a system that was not federated, right? And so I think that we see this in, in particular in, in cities all across the country. Uh, I think that we see it across various states. And so there are these possibilities that federalism uh, is rife with that are important not to ignore. And I think that the, the folks who talk about, um, you know, progressive federalism or, you know, there are various arguments around the ways that federalism can really be a boon. Um, and, and even uh, the, the, the ways that we generally think, and I think historically this is true, federalism is very weak, right? <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, the protections that it uh, provides for, for example, people of color. Uh, even in those ways, we can look at even opportunities that federalism has created for those very same groups. So there's not a straightforward story with federalism, but the point I would make, I guess, is that the larger political opportunity structure of a particular state or a particular locality determines whether it is indeed easier to enact change on the local or state level versus the federal level. So I, I guess the point is that question you asked, isn't it easier for me to make change in Mississippi or Alabama than for me to make national change? The answer to that is actually that it completely depends, right? Mm -hmm. It depends on the thing that you're trying to change and it depends on the political context in which you're trying to enact change. So, you know, even if we think about that very error that you hearken to at the beginning of your comments, you know, uh, and the kind of initial enactment of Medicare and Medicaid uh, under Lyndon B. Johnson. And we look at what happened, and even for Medicare, if we look at what happened in the, the immediate wake of um, the passage of uh, the 1964 uh, Social Security Amendments that ushered in Medicare, uh, the South was absolutely not going to comply. <laughs> And they weren't going to comply because Medicare gave the federal government a mechanism through which to demand desegregation in hospitals and medical facilities. And the South had absolutely no intention of doing that and made it pretty clear in a number of ways. And local actors tried and tried and tried to get that uh, to be different. And it, it just didn't happen, right? desegregation wasn't really a possibility. There was no way that you were going to get hospitals in Mississippi and Alabama to desegregate based on local political organizing or action. It, it could only have happened. I mean, maybe it would have happened eventually. Who knows? I mean, that's a counterfactual I guess we can't answer, but it certainly would not have happened at the pace that it happened, at the scale that it happened um, without the federal government saying this is going to happen and it's going to happen for everyone. So I think there are, this is why it's complicated. There are times when it, act, it absolutely provides more possibilities to work on the state or local level. It provides more opportunities for participation. It strengthens our democracy and makes it more robust that that's an option. Uh, and then there are other times where political barriers mean that the things that need to be done absolutely will not be done 
um, if we rely on on states and localities to to get them done, right? And sometimes those things are a matter of basic human rights and they're a matter of people surviving and remaining alive. And so then it's, you know, it's just important to, uh, to recognize that that kind of localism or even the kind of the prerogatives of states are not always going to ensure that people who are most marginalized actually have their human dignity respected through public policy. So it's a complicated picture. Yeah, that, I think that's a, a great answer. And I, and I take your point very well. And I would add to that, that there, there could also be just issues and in, in different policies that themselves are, are less susceptible to, to, you know, kind of political action, um, conventionally understood. And, and, and I think that's certainly what Dr. King thought, right? I mean, he he attributes the Voting Rights Act to Selma and to the to the organizing and, and to the actions and the marching and the sit-ins and everything else. But then he points to poverty, to education, to healthcare, to housing, to all of these other issues that that are not as susceptible for lots of different and complex and myriad reasons to the same kinds of action. And because of that, I maybe federalism is less of an opportunity to see progress in those areas. And I, I certainly read his, you know, his last book in that in that vein as well. I don't think that's the point he's making. He's always ever hopeful which I think is an important lesson for us all. But it does appear that there are some issues and, and you know, and maybe there's certain ways in dealing with things. If, if an issue is more captured by a kind of a bureaucracy for very good and valid reasons like healthcare, you don't want Congress administering a healthcare system, uh, then then it maybe federalism itself becomes less of, a, of an opportunity structure, as you put it, uh, to, self, to help address those inequalities. So yeah, thank you. I think that's a great answer. So let's let's move the conversation a little bit forward, and I, I want to pick up on on Julia's point from before about whether accountability is just about people voting in in an election, or uh, people actually uh, thinking creatively about what a a fair and more just system might look like. And to pick up on James's point uh, about uh, Dr. King to actually. Uh, people to actually take action and uh, ha- how that would arise uh, and what people in fact should be demanding uh, and, and I you know I would love to get Julia and Jamila both to to weigh in on that point maybe Jamila first man I I think that that is is hard um, I, I what I'm hoping I, I've already admitted that that uh that pessimism is something that I sometimes uh, can can give into, but the optimistic side of me has been hoping that this will be an opportunity, that every crisis, some, I guess people say, I've been hearing a lot of people say this lately, I'm a little bit like, oh, that's an empirical question, but I try to stomp that out, which is every crisis is an opportunity, right? I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's true. Um, but I, I think about it maybe more in terms of what my mom used to say, which is don't waste your pain. And it's like, this is a lot of pain. How can that pain be somehow productively put to use? And it could be productively put to use if, if we figure out things that can really be changed in ways that they can really be changed. And um, so some of those things I think of on a broader kind of meta level. So for example, we will probably have to, I don't know how this will work out, um, but we'll probably have to rethink 
how we implement elections in the fall, um, at least if we want anything that even approximates a fair election, which may be asking for too much. Um, and perhaps that kind of rethinking is something that can kind of carry over, right? Like, oh, wow, if, if we could, if a bunch of people in a bunch of places could vote by mail, then why can't we continue to do that going forward? Now, those things are much more, are very complicated and getting that, uh, the buy-in to implement those kinds of policies is gonna be tricky. But the point is, um, on the electoral level and then on the kind of concrete social policy level, I think that we will have to change things um, in order to keep the various ships that are afloat afloat, <laughs> the ship of our democracy afloat, and just many people needing to needing social policy to adjust so that they can survive. And those changes will be framed as and thought about as short term. I guess my hope is that they will open up space for people to think about different ways of of operating, right? Um, both in terms of social policies. Hey, if we can adjust Medicaid and streamline the application process and make it so that people don't have to turn in as much paperwork and extend the amount of time that we're giving people to complete their applications and ease income restrictions. Some states are even temporarily covering non-residents, right? Who are Who may be stuck in a different state and therefore not residing in you know Washington state and but you're still going to get your Medicaid even though you're in Illinois which previously was really really difficult to have happened so if we can do all these things now because we're in the middle of a crisis why can't we actually extend these improvements so that the system is always easier to navigate and always more responsive to people's needs I think that that if we can bring that kind of frame to this, what are we changing now? And which of these changes can and should we hold on to after this? Um, that that brings me a little hope. The trick is actually making the, those changes uh, more long lasting is very politically challenging, given how deeply polarized we are and given the larger structure of our political system. So it's not clear whether that's going to be possible. Uh, but if we can do some of that, I think that it, it it is a harbinger for hope, I would say. That's a great, hopeful answer. Um, I want to actually answer this question at the intersection of two of the things that I found most fascinating in fragmented democracy. And one is the, what is the language that people use about the state not caring? Um in a way that they both personify the state, right? It's that the state becomes an entity that could care about you or not. And this sort of emotional gap or this emotional reaction to the sort of frustrations that people are, um, are having and, and accessing these benefits is not, you know, it's not so much, I needed this thing and I couldn't get it. Like, obviously that story is there, but the story is also about the way, you know, the way this made them feel and the way that they ascribed emotions to the, to the government. And I think that's, a, so first of all, is highly applicable to some of the reactions that people are having in the current crisis about whether the government cares and about what form that personification might take. Is it, you know, it, now that obviously um, the president, it tends to be the face of government and people have very strong reactions to the current president. Um, but also now we've seen this as governors sort of come to the fore and become key players in this crisis is, you know, to what extent do they personify or not the state 
caring about its residents or not caring. And at the intersection of that, at the intersection of this idea of whether or not government cares and, you know, what that might imply is the, the localism in, described in the research in fragmented democracies. So this goes beyond federalism and the role of, of states and into not just municipalities and local contexts, but, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block. And this this deep politics of place. And it seems clear to me that this politics of place is also a big part of the pandemic story. And maybe maybe to some degree a story that's that's received less national attention than a sort of variation across across states or you know big places like New York City is what is going on specifically block by block in different localities. And that to me, like that the intersection of these two things, the notion that the state doesn't care, and the notion of a highly localized politics. It, to me, those like those make sense together, and that's one of the reasons why I think you do have um, this sort of reaction. I'm trying to put this in a diplomatic way, right? But where people live in in this country, right? People, we have a great degree of residential segregation across across race, across income levels, right? And that does allow people to be removed and to allow the state structures that they might find morally noxious. Um, they might be upset to to read about this or to learn about the way that fellow citizens are being treated. That's my optimistic notion: is that a lot of people, if they really thought about the way. Um, some of their fellow citizens are treated in a bureaucratic context or when re- receiving health care and education. I think a lot about this in terms of the localized nature of education. They would think that's not acceptable, right? If they read about this happening somewhere else, they'd be like, that's, you know, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this society that they allow people to function like that? Um, but because our lived experiences are so localized, that it, it allows people to, to think that way. And so I think that this the politics of the pandemic could go either way. On the one hand, it has been, there has been a lot of variety geographically. And so I, I am starting to hear these narratives come out about, you know, well, this is, this problem is the worst in, you know, particular places, particular communities. You, you've already seen some like urban rural discourse about that this is a you know an urban density problem and not a problem for rural people and that has racial implications that's not that it's not evident that that's true um but that's a that's a piece of discourse um certainly here in milwaukee the the racial disparity in terms of the experience of of covid19 has been pretty evident and so i think that that's like on the one hand people can just sort of like double down on that fragmentation and kind of be you know see themselves as separate from the problem on the other hand i think this crisis has really indicated how important coordination is and how interdependent people are and as, as jamila was just saying you know people may need to receive benefits in a state where they're they don't actually reside because they're there for some other some other reason and, and the ways in which people are interconnected and the ways in which some you know someone else's uh well-being and fate might be linked with your own and so i think there's there's hope for a sort of renaissance of thinking thinking collectively and thinking about coordination i think there's also a path in which people become even more you know double down on being localized and, and apathetic and to some degree that hinges on 
messages and narratives. And to some degree, I think that hinges on who's right about how people, like how the majority of the electorate actually functions and thinks about things and how much people care about each other, which is a you know, deep, um, deep question about human nature that I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer. But that's my, that's sort of my, my thinking about it informed by this work. Yeah, so let's let's kind of wrap up and, and final thoughts, what we've uh, learned, what we've taken away from this conversation, how our thinking has changed. And, uh, and I'll go first here. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, Julia, you know, your remarks about contingency, things could go either way, uh, really resonate with me. And, you know, I think, Jamila, your, your point about how a lot depends on uh, the messaging and the mobilization strategy of, of groups and, and parties and, and campaigns, uh, you know, really emphasizes to me what an important moment this is and how, you know, there is tremendous opportunity to open up our imaginations. And I think, you know, certainly a, a crisis has has that tendency to, to get us to, to think differently because everything around us is different. So why shouldn't our thoughts be different? Uh, so that, you know, that gives me more optimism, certainly. I think, you know, re- reading your book, I would have initially come to this with more pessimism, thinking that, you know, a lot of people are going to be incredibly frustrated with ha- how government is treating them. And this will just further uh, make people feel cynical and, and like your brother that nothing changes. But, you know, I I am encouraged to hear, you know, your anecdotal evidence so far that this seems to have lit a, a spark of, of inquiry among a lot of folks who might have just accepted things as they are, as just as they are. But, you know, so I think the question on all of us is just how to expand our imagination during this moment uh, to, to really envision something that, that is different and works better and is, is fairer to more people. James, you want to give your concluding thoughts? Sure. I, you know, I think we need to think more deeply about what we mean by accountability. And I oftentimes will throw the word around, but I need to think about it in, a, in more capacious ways, I think, and where we hold people accountable and who we hold accountable. I am heartened and encouraged by the notion of agency and the emphasis on agency. As Tom Paine, as Tommy Paine says or writes, we all have the power to begin the world over anew or something to that effect. But I do think that we our ability to do that is disproportionate. And I think that's an important thing about this book, Fragmented Democracy. And it's important that we recognize that. And I also think that we need to really wrestle with the consequences of, of bureaucracy and how it alters and shifts. And and I don't want to use the term distorts because it's kind of the reality right now, but you know, what are, what are the consequences of a, bu- a more bureaucratic model of governance and how does that impact our agency and how does that impact our ability to hold government accountable? And then lastly, I, I do think to kind of bring it back to a more participatory democracy type sense. I mean, one of the things that we do in places like Congress or in the state legislatures with political activity more conventionally understood is that we legitimize policy outcomes. And then in in theory, at least, then the government, the bureaucracy kind of comes in and does its thing. But right now we're not doing that. And I think a lot of the, the 
the debates about healthcare surround what is the appropriate healthcare policy, right? Who, you know, what, it, and those are the kinds of questions that we can't ultimately and fundamentally solve in a bureaucracy. And I think it's really important. It's almost like we've skipped over that step in our society. And I think that, I think that we would be surprised. Uh, and I'm, I'm fundamentally an optimistic person when it comes to our politics. And I think that we would be surprised. It would be a little messy. It would be a little uncertain. It would be a little uncontrollable. But I think a big freewheeling debate about what healthcare ought to look like in this country, an honest debate, and it doesn't mean that we all have to come into it high-minded. I mean, we can just try to win. But trying to win in a healthcare debate in this country around the nation and the different state legislatures and in Congress, I think that we can probably answer a lot of these questions. But as long as we continue to rely on a more bureaucratic model, as long as our parties try to avoid making these decisions in places where they can be held accountable, i.e. in the state and legislatures and in Congress, I think it's going to continue to be very fragmented and dysfunctional and ultimately suboptimal. And I do not think that that is a good thing for our nation and for our citizens. Julia? Yeah, so I'm I'm left a little more hopeful than... Um... Then I started in in terms of thinking about what accountability could you know could possibly mean, and one of the things that this this does this work does kind of push me to think more about is the ways in which democracy is you know occurring in a sort of iterated iterated way. It's not just voting in an election, um, but that that's a bigger that's a piece of a bigger picture that also involves people's various, you know, interactions with the state. And also that the questions need to be, I don't quite know how to say this, right. But the, uh, this, the story of Jamila's brother and the, the question of, um, of working or, you know, taking this tremendous risk going to work in a workplace where there's been a, a COVID outbreak. I've, I've heard stories like this, um, obviously over the last couple of weeks, but this will, I think, stick with me for a long time because it strikes me that there's, there's a moment to frame questions in a very, in a very particular way that's difficult to argue with morally. And that does strike me as a, a you know, it's grim that it came to this, but as an important opportunity to, to reframe what the discussion is about and that that in turn provides an opportunity for, um, for accountability at all different levels. Jamila, you want to wrap up this capacious conversation? <laughs> this is such a hard conversation to wrap up, but I think I just returning to this notion of accountability and whether we'll see that um, either in the coming weeks or thereafter, I, I'm actually, uh, you know, surprised that, I somehow managed to <laughs> uh, generate a conversation that at least had some bits of optimism embedded in it. Uh, and, and maybe I'm pleasantly surprised that I can do it. Um, I'll tell my students that who accuse me of being pessimistic all the time. But uh, I do think that one of the things that is going to be crucial to keep an eye on that's kind of floated implicitly and sometimes explicitly uh, in the background of this conversation um, is going to be the reality that in many ways we're uh, deeply divided and separated from each other. And so what Julia said er earlier about some of this is going to hinge on like how much we care about each other. Uh, I think that that's true. But 
how much we care about each other hinges on on who the we is and so you know if you care about the people in your community in your neighborhood in your life and you look around and all of those people seem fine um then the moral urgency of change as a result of the failures of governance in this moment is going to be much less clear but if you look around and everyone around you is suffering right your next door my parents next door neighbor had COVID-19 and it just feels in certain parts of New York City at least like everyone is suffering and so then the the failures are that much more clear to you the urgency of the moment is that much more clear to you um but we're so divided in terms of who we see around us in our lives with respect to race, with respect to class, even with respect to partisanship, uh, that we may all be looking out and seeing very different things. And in the context where we're all seeing different things, we may not all be able to see failure. And then we, there won't be a, a kind of accountability to a failure that we're not perceiving. And so I guess the point is that we're bringing a lot of baggage into this crisis, the baggage of enduring and frankly growing race, class, and partisan divisions. And even as we're trying to learn lessons from what is happening now, we will not be able to avoid that baggage. We'll have to contend with it. And so I think the question is how do we contend with those divisions while productively learning from this moment so that we can move towards change so that the government isn't failing large swaths of people? And I think that's a really difficult question and I'm not completely pessimistic about the answer, but I wouldn't go as far as saying that I'm optimistic either. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.